We are in part 15 of our First Corinthians series that we entitled Practical Faithfulness. And I entitled this morning's message, Faithful to Your Witness. And I want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank right off the bat on that sheet. Because I have a couple thoughts for you. I'll share this first. The number one testimony you will ever give are your actions and your behaviors. What you say is vastly important, but it pales in comparison to how you act. The fill in the blank in front of you is this. How you act says volumes about the God you serve. How you act says volumes about the God you serve. Whether you are at home or you are at the office or you are at school or you are with your friends, whether you are in church, you are consistently conveying something about God, both in the private places and in the public places. If there is another person in the room, you are conveying something about God. You do not have to be a Christian to convey things about God, because if someone is hurting and they're crying out to God saying, God, do you care about me? And they watch people pass by them. They don't know whether they're Christians or not, but they're making assumptions about God that someone's ignoring their need. So whether you're a Christian or not, it still matters. But when they know that you're a Christian, everything goes up exponentially. Because then they begin to attach to you specific links that the nuances are God's nuances. For example, the words that you say, they're going to assume they're not only sanctioned by God, that they're initiated by God. They're going to assume that the way that you talk to them is the way that God would talk to them. They believe that the way that you treat them somehow is acceptable in the eyes of God. If they know that you're a Christian, they're going to associate everything you do with their creator. Is that fair? No. Does it matter? No. They're still going to do what they're going to do. They're going to believe what they're going to believe. Just understand that a lot of us want to remain hidden, yeah? I mean, we we don't want people to know that we're Christians because then there's accountability and and we kind of keep that underground and... You understand that God's not all right with that? And here, here's why. He actually saved you and is using you as salt and light. But a, but a light what? Underneath a basket is no help. So what he'll do is he'll flick off the basket. And if you go, man, my light's not shining real bright. He goes, well, I got a flashlight right here and he'll shine it right on you. And you're going to go, well, God, I'm trying to keep a low profile here. And he'll go, here's a train coming. Look, watch. And he'll shove you right in front of the train. Wham! Take you out, right? Why? Because he's going to demonstrate to the world what real Christians look like. He is not interested in just showing, hey, what do super wealthy Christians look like? What do Christians that have everything all put together look like? What do Christians with perfect marriages look like? That's bogus and not helpful because that does not apply to the majority of people in this world. What he wants to demonstrate is what do screwed up Christians look like? What do Christians that wrestle with addiction look like? What do Christians that wrestle through difficulty in their marriage look like? And so God will shine a light on you when you don't think you're ready. You're getting set up by God. And there's a dramatic danger of having a rights mentality that we go through life about the idea of, 
well, I have a right to do this. I got a right to that. You know what? You don't have any right to get in my face. And I have this, you know, this entitlement attitude. When, when we operate with that, it clashes with the expectations and callings of God. Because it's actually not about your rights. It's about why you're here. And that's to bring glory to God. I'll close this piece with this. We must be sharing our faith. And if we do not watch how we act, we're missing out on our most powerful evangelistic tool that we have. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. In the Bibles under the chairs, it's page 958, 958, if you want to follow along with us. We're going to be reading through this, the last piece of chapter 10. We're going to go through the first 16 verses of chapter 11, so it's a lot to get into. We have a limited amount of time, so let's hit the ground rolling. Paul continues to talk to the church in Corinth by saying this. He said, now all things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of the conscience, I don't mean your conscience, I mean his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved." Be imitators of me as I'm imitators of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven for if a wife will not cover her head then she should cut her hair short but since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head let her cover her head for a man ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of god but woman is the glory of man for man was not made from woman but woman from man neither was man created for woman but woman for man that's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. All right, so that's pretty clear. Let's go ahead and close for this morning. (laughs) At least there's nothing controversial in there. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Welcome to Bridgeway, where we blow up your life (laughs) on a weekly basis. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, uh, we are walking into material, Lord, where most of the time we don't even have a clue what's going on. And so, Lord, would you not only illuminate for us and give us an idea of what in the world we're reading, but Father, once we do understand, once we get it, once we interpret accurately, Lord, would you help us to apply it in a practical way that we might live differently, that we might love you more, that we might love people more because of today. God, move in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, zoom back to verse 23. Let's tear it apart verse by verse. This is surprisingly, by the time we get done with it, you're going to find this is a lot easier than it might imagine. I know we read a bunch of stuff and it seemed all kind of haywire and talking, what are you talking about and this and that and angels and, well, you know what? Let's go through a little bit slower. Makes a little bit more sense. So we begin with this. We begin with a Corinthian slogan. Remember how, as Paul's been writing this letter back, he's kind of quoting back to them mottos that they would use for life. Little axioms. And one of their favorite axioms was, everything's lawful. Man, everything's permissible. I can do whatever I want, Jesus. I got liberty, right? Now, where did they get that idea? Well, we, they got it from Paul. I mean, you can go through all different writings of Paul, and you can go through all Scripture, and you begin to understand that he who the Son sets free will be free indeed. It talks about the idea that we are no longer under rules and regulations, but we are under grace. That when Jesus Christ died for your sins, and you surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you submitted to the cross, that you are no longer under that rules and regulations, i got to perform, got to perform, got to make God love me. You are now washed clean. You now have grace as the overarching principle of your life. It says, though your sins were as scarlet, you are now white as snow. You hear phrases like, there is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. You begin to see all different kinds of things torn down. You see that whether or not the world keeps you locked down in bondage and slavery, that Jesus Christ has set you free and no man owns you but Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, this is stuff that Paul's been teaching. This is in the Bible. This is clear. So why did they think they have so much liberty in Jesus? Because he told them they did. So they kind of hung on to that one. Everybody likes freedom, yeah? So they said, man, I can do anything. Liberty in Christ, freedom in Jesus. He said, all right, let's play that game. You're right, absolutely, all things are permissible. But not all things are helpful. There's not benefit in everything that you do. Uh, all right, all things are lawful. Let's play it again. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Guess what? You have the freedom to be critical. And it tears down another person's spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? You have the freedom to go, you know what? I'm just, I'm just saying what's right. I'm just saying what's true. You know what? That outfit you're wearing, it's ugly. I'm just telling you. I'm just being honest. Right? I mean, I have freedom in Jesus to tell exactly what I think about what you're wearing. Right? All right? Granted, I got the freedom to call you a jerk. Here's the bottom line. Is that building up anybody? No, it's not. It's tearing down. And so just because you have the freedom, so many of us spend the majority of our life trying to figure out, is what I'm doing good? Is it acceptable in God's eyes? And, and everything we do is wrapped up in us. Am I in the right place? How about we mature past being in the right place and now going, so what do I do with that? When are we going to mature into the place where we get our eyes off ourselves and start looking at other people that even though you have the freedom to do it, your next question should be, and should I utilize that freedom? 
That's kind of his point. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Bottom line, you must be determined to live as a Christian with an other's mindset. There is no room for selfishness in the life of a believer. It's not about you. You are here to praise God, to glorify God, and to be his distribution house of love to other people. The world does not revolve around you. Pick it up verse 25. He goes back and starts addressing this issue of eating meat offered to idols. If you are new to this series or jumping in, we've been talking about this. Paul kind of hits this periodically, and this is kind of where he wraps it up. And really, here's the scenario. The scenario was, in Corinth, you're in ancient Greco-Roman world, where you were surrounded by temples. The marketplace, where they sell the meat and fish, in Corinth, was right next to the temples. And the way that it would work is, just as we know in the Old Testament, the Jews would sacrifice animals to God. In the same way, the pagan temples would sacrifice animals to their gods. Now, are there really any gods? No, but they thought there were. Temple of Aphrodite and and um, the temple of the god to this, the god of war, the god of, you know, they would do all these. Now, if you were a demon, wouldn't you kind of jump into that ball game and say, hey, I I don't know who you think I am, but I'm going to take advantage of this. So if you're seeking power from me, I will jump in there. I'll call it the temple of me. So you want to sacrifice meat to me? That's fine. But when they would sacrifice these offerings, there was too much meat to be consumed there. And so they would sell all the extra meat out in the marketplace. So you didn't know necessarily when you went to the marketplace is this meat that has been offered to an idol or is it not so christians started worrying about that stuff man am i eating demon meat man I, uh, is god gonna be mad at me i mean it's just i mean it looks good could be a demon burger i have no idea I mean, I opened it up. I can't see one, but I don't know if it's in there. And then God's going to be like, ooh, you ate the demon burger. Now I'm mad at you, right? So all the Christians were nervous about this, and they're, and they're saying, I don't want to be partakers of demon stuff. And so Paul kept addressing this issue. It was kind of a big deal for them. So we said, all right, what we've already established is there's no such thing as other gods. However, there are demon stuff, so here's the rules that we want to lay down. Listen, don't be eaten food sacrificed to idols in the temple because that association is going to be weird i don't want you going to their rituals where they are honoring the god don't be a part of that but as far as the meat goes eh, it's just meat and this is where he picks it up verse 25 eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience when you're shopping I need a good ribeye. Just buy the meat. I don't know where to come from. What was a cow like? What was his personality? I mean, you don't have to ask all these questions. Let it go. Get the meat. Move on, man. Now, that is not acceptable in the Jewish view. The Jewish view in the Mishnah says, basically, you better find out if it's kosher, and you better go to the nth degree to make sure it is legit under the dietary laws. You don't just go and eat whatever you want to eat. So there was a freedom, a liberty that was coming into the church that some of the Jews were not used to. They were used to asking extensive questions. Paul said, no, 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 no. You're buying your own meat for your own household. Walk in, buy it. Don't worry about it. Why? Verse 26, he cites Psalm 24, 1. 
by citing a Jewish blessing over the meal. They were familiar with this, and it said, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That just merely means God owns everything. You know, you hear that, that phrase, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, actually, God owns all cows, and so if you're eating meat, well, God, you're eating God meat. All right? It's not a big deal. However, verse 27, if one of the unbelievers, one of your buddies, invites you to a dinner and you are disposed to go, pause. Are you supposed to go to the houses of non-believers for dinner? Absolutely. Why? I don't know. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. And I remember just reading a story to my daughter the other day about Zacchaeus and how Jesus went to his house for lunch that day. And it transformed that man. Uh, Of course we are to engage with our culture. That is very clear. He said, now let's say that your unbelieving buddy has you over for dinner and you are disposed to go, meaning you know it's a good idea, your head's in the game, you're ready to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Walk in, hey, these steaks look awesome. Man, this looks really good. Hey, thank you so much for having me over, right? Can't wait to dig in. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in a sacrifice, then don't eat it. What? Why? All right, here's the scenario. Bob invites you over, right? Hey, Bob, these steaks smell awesome. That's really cool. Then Bob goes, hey, you're one of them born-again folks, right? We've been buddies for a long time, but you got saved. I get it. All right, just so you know, it's ritual meat. You're like, shoot, dude, why'd you have to say that? You have to slide your plate away. Great, I was fine till you mentioned that. Or is it somebody that is also at the table, right? So Bob serves you, and then Frank's sitting next to you. Bob has no idea. He serves up the steaks. Then Frank, on the side of you, leans over and goes, total demon meat. (laughs) You're like, Frank, shut up, man. I didn't. First of all, how do you know that, right? Are you like stalking the cow? What's the deal, right? How do you know that? Now you ruined my meal, man. The game just changed on you because it's no longer about meat. It's now about the issue of people. Here's what he said. He said, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. They brought it up for a reason. Now they're about to make a judgment based on what you're going to do next. So it's no longer about eating for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience. I mean his conscience, Paul says. Uh, Remember, what's a conscience? A conscience is an internal alarm clock of what is right and wrong. Is it accurate? I don't know. Everybody's conscience is different. As a matter of fact, some of our consciences are scarred, marred, messed up. We've smashed it over the head so many times it doesn't even ring anymore, right? I mean, we have all kinds of different things. A conscience is not necessarily accurate. It's our ability to hone right from wrong. The more and more we walk with Jesus, the more we sit in his word, the more that we pray and commune with him and connect with him, it sharpens and specifies our right and wrong conscience to being biblical. It makes our conscience more godly and right. So now we have an issue of conscience. Now the guy just said... I don't think you should eat that. That's the game changed. The whole scenario changed. It's not about meat. It's now about people. And now all of a sudden, if you eat it, you're going to make him set his alarm wrong. You're going to mess with his conscience. Doesn't mean he's accurate. Doesn't mean you're accurate. It just means now you're harming someone and that we cannot do. He said, but I need to be very clear. 
that I'm not changing my viewpoint. I'm changing my behavior. Y'all understand the difference? I'm not changing my, uh, my sense of what is right and wrong on this issue, but I'm altering how I carry it out. So he said this, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Why does your baggage have to factor into my heart? It does not. I may have to act differently around you. But I'm not going to allow everyone else's hang-ups as they're getting more and more mature in Christ. I can't allow that to dictate what I believe internally about God. If God has already set me free, I don't need to have your bondage become my bondage. However, I need to take yours into account when we're together. But that doesn't mean I'm changing how I believe. Paul doesn't say just because someone else is a little nervous about the demon meat issue, he's like, I already settled that in my heart. I already know it's God's stuff. I'm not worried about it. I'm not changing that viewpoint. However, when I'm around you, I'm going to change my behavior. All right, we got it. Verse 31. So whatever you, whether you eat or drink or, I don't know, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What's that mean? Well, this is a very freeing statement, and here's why. If God is in your heart, and you're living for him, which of course is Christianity is a lifestyle thing. It's not an attend church thing. We all know that. How do we glorify God? By being human. I remember uh, kind of a realization, a revelation as I was reading Psalms and I was reading a phrase. I'm not a big nature guy. And I was reading this phrase. It was talking about how the trees clap their hands and, and the mountains rejoice. And it was talking about how nature glorifies God. You know, it talks about the animal kingdom, you know, that the animals glorify God. Well, what ultimately are they doing? Are they involved in ministry? Because that's always our answer, right? If I'm going to glorify God, I need to be in ministry. I got to do something for God. I mean, I got to, that's the only way I can glorify God. No, that is incorrect. How do trees glorify God? By being trees. How do animals glorify God? By being animals. What does that mean? It means they are doing what they were created to do, and God already built into them the ability to be glorified through them. Well, how does that apply to us? Because when you are human, when you are doing the things humans do in rightness and in uh, living abundantly, laughing with your friends, joking around, playing with your kids, uh, relaxing, going on family vacation, these things emanate the glory of God because you're doing what you were built to do. We always think that the only time God gets glory through us is when we're actively doing something because of our performance mentality. That's not correct. As a matter of fact, glory is emanating out of the believer all the time until we shut it down with sin and we become less than human. And we act unhuman. Let me ask you this. One last analogy on that. Let's say any of you who have ever had children, you walk in and you see your little baby in the crib and your baby's sleeping. And you go, cutest baby in the whole wide world, right? You know that, because it's yours. What was the baby doing at the time? Nothing, just laying there. But yet somehow there was a beauty that emanated off that baby, and it made you feel good. When God sees his saved children just sleeping, glory is rising up to him because of what he's doing inside them. Does that make sense? All right, let's pick it up. He said, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, verse 32, meaning don't hijack people's attempt to get near God. 
If God is wooing people all around you, and I would suggest to you that God is going to woo every person in the entire world to some degree. He is going to convey himself to them, and they will be held accountable to that which he has revealed to them. He will then somehow share his presence to be able to know that he is there. As he's conveying these ideas, we're going around and we are, when we are behaving badly, when we are behaving selfishly, we're hijacking that process. Stop doing that. Encourage the process. Don't make it harder. Hey, I'd love to be a Christian, but I hate all those people that go to church. You know what I'm saying? That makes it harder. Oh, God, help me from your followers. That kind of save me from your followers. You remember that one? That kind of idea. Why? Because when Christians are behaving badly, it makes everyone have to go through like two conversions. Well, I love Jesus. I got to convert to him. But, oh, now I got to become one of those church people. Ew. But you understand we're making everything more difficult. He said, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, he said, just as I'm others focused, I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. There's that evangelistic mindset. All right, pick it up in 11.1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Is that, is that cocky? Is that arrogant? Is Paul allowed to say that? Be imitators of me as I'm imitators of Christ. Don't you look and you go, ooh, Paul, look at you. Wow, you're awesome, huh? You're all like Jesus. No, it is a statement that every single believer in this room should be able to say. Why? Because insofar as you're following Jesus, you're showing a good role modeling. That what you deviate from Christ, I hope they don't follow that. Right? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Why? Because human beings grow by role modeling. It's been that way when we were babies. It's that way when we're 95. We only grow by role modeling. So should we be role modeling for the world? Absolutely. Should we find other people that we can relate to to role model? Absolutely. We're always growing by discipling processes. Right? Then he says this. Now, verse 2. And this is a shift. From here on all the way through chapter 14, Paul is going to address what is going on in church gatherings. So I need you to realize that wherever we move from here on out, we're talking about corporate get-togethers. It doesn't always mean specific church. It could be a group of this folks or a group of this or whatever, but it means you're all coming together for a purpose of Christ. Because the problem in Corinth was that you have this brand new baby believers, their church was exploding, they were fired up, they had the spiritual gifts going crazy, they were super arrogant and cocky about it, and they were totally chaotic. So Paul's going to spend a number of chapters trying to get everyone locked in so that God is honored when they get together and it's not ruining everything. Make sense? So he begins with a nice phrase. Now, whenever Paul gives you a compliment, you should take it because you're about to get hit over the head. Here we go. He said, now, I want to commend you. I want to give you props because you remember me in everything and you maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Hey, I appreciate the fact that I'm not there anymore as your pastor. I understand you have another pastor that's come along. However, you guys still act as if I'm your authority. You're still trying to implement what I told you to do. I appreciate that. That's great. However... Man, you guys are way out of line in a whole bunch of areas. Next word, but, right? Here we go. But there's stuff going on out there that I need to correct. Let's talk about it theologically. I want you to understand. 
I need you to own this, he said, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What's that? What do you, what do you mean by head? The head of. What, what are you trying to say? Because everybody immediately locks on which part? The wife part, right? Nobody even paid attention to the, the head of man is Christ, the head of Christ is God. We immediately zoom in on, what do you mean? The head of a, a wife is her husband. What are you trying to say? You're trying to say that she's like a secretary? You're trying to say like she's inferior? Is that what you're trying to say, Paul? You're trying to be chauvinistic and try to talk about how men are all that and women are, oh, I'm just here to help him out. I have no, you know, I have no focus of my own. That kind of stuff, right? Is that what we're trying to say? Is the Bible keeping down women? And immediately we get really kind of agitated, right? What do you mean by head? Well, there's two ways to look at it. I'm going to suggest to you that both ways are in play in this passage. Head can mean source. It can mean origin. For example, an old school way of looking at it was they would say the headwaters of the river are up here. What does it mean? It means the source of the river flows from there. So it can be origin or source. You go, well, how does that apply to men and women? Well, let's play the game. Adam was made out of what? Dirt. What was woman made out of? Dirt? No. Rib. So the rib of man. So right off the bat, if we're going to talk about creation design, and that's where Paul's going to go, we can argue that women, their source was ultimately in men. They came from the rib. That's kind of what an argument he's going to make. Now, is that always what it means here? No, there's also another piece. Head also means what? Authority. Why? Because you go, hey, that, that guy's the head of the organization. You mean he's the authority of the organization. If I tell you, people say, who runs Bridgeway? And I go, well, the elders are the head of the church. Okay, well, that means they're the authority of the church, right? Now you go, well, wait a second. Are you saying that, that husbands are the authority over the wife? Yeah, I kind of am. And you go, well, that, that, that's offensive. Why? Because what he just did is put a chain of events. He said, the head of wives are husbands, the head of husbands are Christ, the head of Christ is God. If the chain has been put together, you cannot make one say what the other is not true. What does that mean? Does that mean when it says the head of Christ is God, that somehow Jesus Christ is inferior to God? Is that what you just heard? Because that cannot be. Jesus Christ has always been God. Trinity is eternal, always been the same. There is no what inferiority or superiority at all in the trinity the father son and holy spirit are absolutely 100 percent equal then what does it mean it cannot mean inferiority it talks much more about roles jesus christ at all times said i am subordinate to the father and no one seems to have a problem with that why because it was all about getting a process done it was saying, listen, we're going to do something. We're going to issue out jobs. All right, we're going to fire from here. You're going to do this. You're going to do this. I'm going to do this. All right, let's go. The Trinity was 100% in the same mind. You cannot make the husband and wife thing say what the Trinity thing does not say. He just linked them together. He moves on. He said this. He said, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered dishonors his head. Ah, we got a couple problems there. First of all, what do you mean praise? Like people pray all the time. You know, pray when you're laying in bed, pray when you're driving in the car, that kind of stuff. Is that what you're talking about? No. What did I tell you was the context? We are now talking about what? Corporate gatherings. 
We're not just talking about praying. We're talking about leading in prayer. We're talking about praying out loud where other people are agreeing with you. It is a leading in prayer concept or at least a vocalization of prayer out loud. What is prophecy? Well, back then, the gift of prophecy was in a lot of use. I mean, it was kind of a big deal. They didn't have scriptures that they were referring to back and forth other than the Old Testament because it was still being written. And as a matter of fact, they would have direct download from God. This is a, I got a word from the Lord kind of stuff. The God has come upon me and he is demonstrating this is what he desires of his people. This is what I feel he is believing about our congregation. This is what I believe that he desires for us to worship in and to say. And there are downloads from God in the service Publicly, if a man does that, whatever that is, and he does it with his head covered, he dishonors his head. You mean he dishonors his noggin, him? Yeah, but also what? His authority. Who is that? Christ. If he does it wrong, it dishonors Christ. We need to lock that down. What does that mean? How would a man cover his head? Well, this is where you get into the other debate. Is this passage, when it talks about head coverings, is it talking about long hair? Some of the times you look at it and you go, I think it's talking about hair. I think it's talking about, because what it says in Greek is that which hangs down from his head. You're like, well, you mean like long hair? Is that what you're trying to say? You either have that being referred to, meaning some men were utilizing a long hair style that was much more the women's style of the day for whatever reason, And it was dishonoring God or it means they were wearing some type of material covering over their head. The only analogy we have, by the way, scholars don't know what it means. The only analogy that we have about that is that in the Roman time in that era, there was a group that would in the pagan rituals would grab their toga and put it over their head in honor of the local gods. Well, if you are used to that outside in society and then you assume that you pull yours up when you come to church everyone's going dude that's a pagan thing can we please not do that here i'd appreciate that drop it off why because it's not in honor of the local gods we're now talking to god whatever this is it is not like the yarmulke that the jews wear right the men cover their heads have you noticed that and on and off throughout history, did you know that the yarmulke really didn't become a constant until the 4th century AD after all this? So that wasn't even in play at the time. They used different head coverings, but not that skull cap. That skull cap for the Jews is a, I'm under authority to God. It's a respect issue. That's not what was going on here. All right. So we got the men's thing. The women's thing gets more complicated. Look at this. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. First of all, prays or prophesies what way? Oh, that's right, publicly. We're talking about gatherings. Now, we can get into this whole idea uh, about how complicated this is because in chapter 14, he's about to say women are to be silent in the church. In 1 Timothy, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach. So what are, we, what are we dealing with here? Because now we have him saying, hey, when you guys are publicly prophesying and when you guys are publicly leading in prayer, ladies, I need you to do this, but you're supposed to be silent. How's that going to work out, right? Something's amiss there, and we're going to address that in chapter 14. What we need to know here is that wherever public pre, uh, prophesying and praying is legitimate, there's a way to do it. 
That's what we're going to address right now. What does it mean for a woman to have her head uncovered? This is actually a lot easier. Uh, let me just ask a real quick question. Do women have the gift of prophecy as much as men? Yes. How do we know that? Not only from this passage, but we have a famous prophecy uh, by Joel. In the book of Joel, it, there was a prophecy given about the later times, the church age. As a matter of fact, it was quoted by Peter in Pentecost when the church kicked off. And he said, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Do you remember that? So women have the gift of prophecy. As a matter of fact, in Acts uh, chapter 12, I believe, Philip's four daughters prophesy. So women have the gift of prophecy just as much as men. There is a time and appropriate place for women to utilize the gift of prophecy. That is a debate for chapter 14. But when it's legit, a woman is to pray with her head covered. A woman, a wife, what are we talking about? Here's kind of how it goes. It says, if she prays with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. Her head, her, yes, but also her what? Her authority, who is what? Her husband. She's dishonoring him. Whatever she's doing is dishonoring to her husband. Since it's the same as if her head were shaven. What? How's it the same? What do you mean? Well, in Roman culture, the Romans would shave a woman's head if she was unfaithful to her husband. It was a penalty. And it was to shave off what they deemed in their culture to be her beauty, her glory, and said, if that's what you're going to do, we're going to make you like this. And they shave her head off. For if a wife will not cover her head out of respect for her husband, then she should cut her hair short. But why don't you just go blatant? Let's go full disrespect and take the heat for it. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, why don't you put a cover on your head? Okay, here's, here's how it works. This is actually not nearly as complicated as it appears. Every society and culture comes up with ideas to convey who you are. For example, style of dress, style of talking, behaviors, things like that. We're always giving off signs to each other so that we don't have to ask a lot of questions. Now, in our culture, we have a few symbols. A lot of them are very confusing now, to be honest with you. We don't even know what in the world's going on with each other. However, there's a couple symbols we still utilize. One of them is this. What is this? Well, it's a wedding ring. We have a, an accepted societal symbol that says, I'm off the market. Uh, if you are single, I am not going to engage with you in that way because I'm not looking for a relationship. I have one, and I'm in a committed relationship. Do you understand? All that's conveyed with one little, one little symbol. And so out and about, if you are single and you find somebody, you go, man, that person's totally attractive. They're really sweet. And you look down and notice they have a ring. What happens? The conversation shifts. Because that is our societal way of demonstrating something okay now in all areas it's been like that in paul's day the way that they wore their hair conveyed certain things when all of society does it one way and you deviate you're communicating something else for example at that time the women all wore long hair and in their culture that was a sign of beauty or blessing now, is that in our culture? No, it has no bearing whatsoever. Was it a big deal to them? Totally. All the men, you can look at all the coins from the day and all the pottery pictures of the day, all the men had short cropped hair. So if a man came out and had long hair, they're going, what are you doing, dude? I don't get it. What are you trying to say? Are you trying to say that you're a lady? I don't understand what you're doing. I'm confused. 
Now, here's what's intriguing. Even in that region, it was different given the region. For example, the Spartans wore long hair. Nobody thought they were effeminate. You guys know who the Spartans are? Those are the guys that just kill everyone, right? They're the whole 300 guys. They had long hair. They tie it back. Now, nobody ever thought that because in their culture, the hair was not the thing. Here in Corinth and all the places like back in Jerusalem, they all wore their hair in a similar way. On top of that, the ladies would have a covering over their head, both of protection being out in society as a symbol that they had a husband back home and a symbol of modesty. The only women who did not wear a covering and cut their hair short were all the temple prostitutes. So now all of a sudden we have this clash where everything's starting to move in society. And you have these women going, you know what? I have freedom in Jesus. This whole business about, oh, look at me. I'm all owned by my husband. Forget that. I'm not doing that. This is between me and the Lord. And I'm right here, right now, engaging with my Jesus. Forget that. They throw off their head covering and go to town. And all the guys are like, is she available now? Is she? You're like, what? No. What are we talking about? Well, I I don't understand. In in our culture, every time that you do that, it's it's like taking your ring and just throwing it away. And then they're like, ah, I'm confused, right? It's causing chaos in the worship service. It's clashing with everybody. And they're going, I don't know what you're trying to convey. Because now with our society, once again, hairstyles don't convey anything like that. Uh, what would convey in our society is full makeup, right? In full makeup, if you had, in general, most stereotypically, women can wear full makeup without any concern. If men wear full makeup, eyeshadow, and everything else, they're conveying something else. You guys tracking with me? That's the same thing as this. So if somebody comes fully done up, fake eyelashes, the whole deal, and it's a dude, and he walks in, people are going to go, I don't get it. I'm not quite sure what we're doing. Because he's trying to convey something else. That's what was happening, and people were getting confused. So the ladies were saying, I'm tired of, if I want to cut my hair short, I'll cut my hair short. And they're going, that's true. However, you look like the girl who works on Broadway and 17th. I think I know you. In our world, dress is very confusing because styles morph, and we have so much difference. Back then, there was only a few styles. So if anyone deviated from you were communicating things, we have so much, uh, variety. Nobody has any idea what you're communicating. They're just like, I don't, are you dressing single? I don't even know what that means anymore. Are you dressing? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. They knew. So the simple point of this whole passage is, would you guys believe that it would be completely dishonoring for a woman who's married to walk in throw a ring on the ground and just go, don't care about my husband. Anyway, I'm going to be leading here at church. Is that a problem? You would all look and go, what's your problem, girl? I don't understand. Why would you dishonor him like that? That's what was happening. And they weren't trying to, they weren't trying to be a jerk. They were just trying to utilize their freedom in Christ. Yeah, but you still got to work with society. Make sense? All right, we move on. For a man, verse seven, ought not to cover his head, literally. Since he's the image representation and the glory of God, man makes God look good, but woman is the glory of man. Wives make husbands look good. 
Why? Because the man is, just as Christ is ministering to the man, the man is to be ministering to his wife in such a thriving way that she is healthy and whole and everybody can see whether or not he's a good husband by looking at the wife. Yeah? For man was not made from woman. He was made from dirt. But woman was made from man with a rib. Neither was man created for woman. Remember, Adam was first and it was just him and God alone. But woman was made for man when it wasn't good for him to be alone and he got a helpmate, right? We now all of a sudden see role. Has nothing to do with equality. Has to do with role. All right. It says that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. You know, because of the angels. What? Shoot. I thought we were going to get out of here. I thought we were just ready to wrap up and roll forward. Come on. Seriously? You drop an angel thing on me? What does that mean? Well, actually... You only have really two options. I mean, there's a bunch of guesses because no one knows what it means. But you got two basic options. The first one's creepy. The first one um, was held by a lot of the early church fathers, and it was the Genesis 6 argument, which is, you guys remember the story of the Nephilim where it says, and the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they had these offspring that were the giants in the land. Do you remember that? It's a really weird passage. The idea was that women still had the ability to tempt angels by their beauty. And so when they come into church and they cast that off, they are causing an openness and a sexual availability that's going to distract the angels. That's your first option. That was the old school way of viewing this. A little, probably a little bit more likely argument is that angels are present in the, in the house of worship. Angels are with us at all times. Why? Because they join in with our praise and worship to God. They are standing here even now with us. They are engaging with us. They're, they're going around doing the will of God. If God's presence is here, his angels are here. They are messengers of him, and they're observing everything we do. And they are what type of beings? They are absolutely obedient at all times. As a matter of fact, they are so respectful of God that even in their glorified condition and they see God, you even have the cherubim having two wings that what? Cover their face and they cover their bodies. Why? In an absolute respect and humility before God. So when you all of a sudden have Corinth going, you know what? Who cares? I got my rights. I can do whatever I want. Who cares? Oh, so what? I got freedom in Jesus. I can do this. And so what? My husband's dishonored. Is that a big deal? Whatever. He's a big boy. He can handle it. The angels are like, what's that? What'd you just do? Oh, you're asserting your rights. Do you understand who God is? Seriously, Lord, you want us to watch over these folks? A bunch of losers. What are we talking about? I don't want to be here. They don't even take you seriously, God. I mean, we're here doing everything you say. And not only that, Lord, seriously, in your word, it says they're going to rule over us. They're going to judge us. They don't even know what in the world they're doing. You save them these little dirt bags, right? You have this dirt and you put your, you breathe your life into it. And these dirt bags are trying to pretend like they run the world and it centers around them. They don't even know who you are. When the church goes to chaos, the angels are offended. And they're going, I don't see it. I don't want any part of that. That's not me. Nevertheless, verse 11. In the Lord, meaning, unless you thought I said something about women being inferior to men, can we be very straightforward here, verse 11. In the Lord, meaning value, equality, stuff like that. Let's be clear. Woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. God made us mutually necessary and interdependent. Everyone has to be, and they're all 100% equal. 
For as woman was made from man's rib, so man is now born of woman. Why does he say now? Because the first one wasn't born of woman. Adam wasn't born of a woman. But everyone after the fall, guess what? Born of a woman. Here's the great irony. Ready? Ladies are under the authority of their husbands. Well, that's really ironic because their husbands had to be under the authority of a woman for the first 18 years of their life. Right? So all men were raised by a mom who had ultimate authority and they had to learn how to treat women. From who? The woman in authority over them. They spend the whole beginning of their life under the authority of women so that they might be able to be good authorities over the women in their lives. Does that make sense? It's almost like it was planned. And all things are from God. Ultimately, he brought, brings it back to this. Seriously, any submission issues that you have, ultimately, we're all underneath God. And I don't think any of us have a problem with that. I think we're just trying to figure out our roles. Judge for yourselves. He said, reason this out in your head, right? Is it proper for a wife to pray with, to God with her head uncovered? Is it okay for a woman or a man to come into church, disrespect someone else in the congregation, and then just pretend like it's cool and keep worshiping God? No, of course not. Everybody would go, no, that's terrible. You can't be rude to somebody else in church and then just think you can praise God and it's not a problem. No, we have to be honorable. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory. Her hair was given to her as a covering. Pause. Does everyone know I had long hair? Right? This one got dropped on me a, a number of times. It, it, nature says it's dishonoring. You know, and you're like, what do you mean nature says? And then some commentators are like, well, male pattern baldness demonstrates that over time men lose their hair while women retain their hair and blah, 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 blah. Okay, bogus. That's not at all what it means. Here's what it means. When it says nature, it means the societal conventions of the day. Meaning their society demonstrated when everyone's doing this, they set up this parameter. When everyone's doing this, they set up that parameter. When you violate that, it ends up becoming a problem for you. That's all it said. In our day and around, everything's changed. It does not matter. Like, for example, for a long time, women started wearing hats in church because they thought that somehow applied to this. It has no application whatsoever. Because that's not what's conveyed. Hats do not convey in our society that you have a husband at home. It has no applicability whatsoever. There's a bunch of people that get offended when, when young men come in with their hats on in church. They go, you take that off. Why? Because of this stuff. But that's not what it conveys in our society. Hats do not convey authority or disrespect in any way, shape, or form. But it used to. Understand things are moving and morphing. We do not have if a guy wears long hair or whatever it is There's a whole bunch of guys that wear long hair in our society and they are actually seen as very masculine That's that doesn't convey anything So what we have to do is look in our society and go What does our society read and how do we work within those conventions to demonstrate the glory of God and respect for our families? He finishes it with this. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That means if you want to argue with me about it, tough luck. All right. What do we do with this? Let's finish up. We must be aware that God is providing opportunities all around us to demonstrate his glory. And we can hijack that process. We can get off on all these tangents about head coverings and women and men and women in ministry. And all. You know what the whole passage was about? Be respectful and focus on God. That's actually what the whole passage was about. All it did was keep saying, realize people are around you. And so when you're going through daily life, make sure you're honoring the Lord. Make sure you're paying attention to what's going on. So here's the deal. 
Well, I'm going to pray, give it a closing challenge, and we're going to watch a video. Let's go. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And I just want to thank you, Lord, for walking us through some very difficult places.